Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for joining us on Heritage Events Live. We're delighted to welcome you to Immigration Federalism. What can states do to secure their borders? Please welcome our host, Hans von Spokowski, Election Law Reform Initiative and Senior Legal Fellow. We hope you enjoy the program. Well, welcome to the Heritage Foundation. It's nice to see people here in person. Uh, I'm a little bit gotten tired of Zoom meetings, but for our audience out there um, that's watching us uh, through our live stream, I welcome you uh, here also. Um, you know, we have an unprecedented crisis at the border with illegal aliens flooding into the country in numbers we have not seen before. And anyone who denies there is a crisis at the border is frankly denying reality. It's not only creating chaos and a dangerous situation at the border, but it's also imposing huge costs, uh, not just on the federal government, but on but particularly on state and local government, that is taxpayers, who are now forced to pay for the education, healthcare, housing, living, and numerous other costs of large numbers of illegal aliens who are suddenly deposited in their communities without their consent or permission by the Department of Homeland Security as DHS releases them into the interior of the country. And that's without taking into account the increased victimization caused by numerous criminal aliens committing crimes against citizens and other immigrants. Uh, the Biden administration has dismantled just about every enforcement policy implemented by the Trump administration, apparently erroneously believing that they have no obligation to enforce the immigration statutes passed by Congress. The result is not an open border, but apparently no border at all. So how bad is this problem? Uh, what can states do about it? Uh, how far can they go into the immigration area without intruding on the authority of the federal government? Uh, what can they legally and constitutionally accomplish? And can they, for example, try to use the courts and the judicial system to force uh, the federal government to fulfill its duties to enforce our immigration laws? Uh, I'm not sure we could have come up with three more knowledgeable individuals about this uh, problem uh, than the three experts we have here today. I want to introduce all three of them, and then we will get the discussion growing. And uh, gentlemen, you can either speak from there or come up here, whatever you uh, like. Now, first, we're going to hear from Chad Wolf. Uh, Chad Wolf was the acting secretary of the Department of Homeland Security which has to be, I think, one of the most difficult jobs in the federal government and certainly among cabinet level positions. Uh, Chad oversaw a budget of $47 billion, which I think uh, means we should, maybe we should refer to you as President Wolf, because I think that's larger than many other countries uh, around the world. He managed 240,000 employees at DHS and dealt with many very serious security issues from civil unrest to natural disasters to what we're here to talk about today, which is illegal immigration and the border crisis. He's the founder and president of 
Wolf Global Advisors and a visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation, as well as chairman of the Center for Homeland Security and Immigration at the America First Policy Institute. Uh, after him, we will hear from Ken Cuccinelli. Uh, in addition to being a litigator for 25 years, he served in the Virginia State Senate for eight years before being elected as the Attorney General of the Commonwealth of Virginia. He served as the acting deputy secretary of DHS for two years, where he led the Citizenship and Immigration Services Division of DHS, which is the agency within DHS at the heart of what we are discussing. His prior role as a state AG, I think, gives some particular insight into the differing roles and authority of the federal and state governments in this area. Uh, Fort uh, Heritage is also fortunate to have had Ken as a visiting fellow at the foundation. Finally, last but not least, we will hear from Aaron Wright. Uh, Aaron is the Texas Deputy Attorney General for Legal Strategy, advising Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton on a broad range of legal issues, including immigration, and planning and executing the agency's lawsuits and legal initiatives. He is a former commercial litigator. He clerked on the Texas Supreme Court after receiving his law degree from the University of Texas. He is also a former Marine who served in Afghanistan in one of the most dangerous areas, Helmand Province, where he served as an embedded trainer with the Afghan National Army. He remains a major in the Marine Reserves. Uh, Aaron, we thank you for your service. And of course, I guess I should correct what I said uh, because my military friends are constantly reminding me there's no such thing as a former Marine. And first we'll hear from Chad Wolf. Chad. Well, thanks Hans. Uh, let me lay out uh, for folks the crisis that we are seeing and Hans is exactly correct. It's an unprecedented crisis, but what does that exactly mean and how did we get to the point that we're at? And then certainly some of the colleagues here will, will talk about solutions as we move forward. I think as we looked at um, the transition from the Trump administration to the Biden administration, uh, we saw historic lows uh, of illegal apprehensions in 2020, uh, really started in 2019 and 2020 for a variety of different reasons. But even as some of those numbers started to increase in late 2020, what we were able to do was actually impose and enforce the law, which is even if individuals came to the border illegally, we put them in a, what we called an immigration consequence which is if you choose to break the law, you choose to come across that border, you are gonna, you're not gonna be caught and then released. We're actually going to enforce the law and we did that a variety of different ways through our migrant protection protocols, our asylum cooperative agreements and the list goes on and on and on. And that had that deterrent effect that I think most people in law enforcement would say is part of the law, which is imposing that consequence. So. Keep that in mind as we talk about this crisis, because I think what the current administration has done is basically taken away any type of consequence to folks coming across that border illegally. So we are in uh, what we would say is the worst crisis in 20 years. I hear that term or that phrase a lot. I say that it's probably the worst border crisis we have ever experienced. And why do I say that? From a numbers perspective, you can go back to 2000, 2001 and see some similar numbers. Those are mostly single adults from Mexico, very e easy to repatriate or to remove back to Mexico. What we're dealing with today is very different, particularly as it relates to minors and family units, which are very difficult to repatriate and to remove. Uh, we were able to do it in 2019, again, 2020. This administration is choosing not to enforce the law against these two populations, which makes it very difficult to house these folks, process these folks, 
um, that we've seen over the course of a number of months. Um, so again, I think we are currently in the midst of the worst border crisis we have ever been in, uh, and it's not getting uh, any better. So as we transitioned from the Trump administration to the Biden administration, we gave them a playbook. We gave them a roadmap of things that we have tried over the course of four years during the Trump administration. Some of them worked, some of them didn't work. Uh, but we came with a pretty good playbook to say, here's a variety of different steps that you can take. You can take some, you can take two of the steps, you can take all six, you can take all eight, whatever it might be, depending on the situation and the scenario that you're, you're trying to address. I think what they effectively did was take that playbook and put it in the trash can. Um, because since day one, they have uh, rolled back many and almost all of those effective policies. And they did that without any analysis to how effective is the policy, uh, nor the impacts to what would occur if the policy was taken away and nothing was put in its place. So whether we talk about border wall system, uh, we just saw recently contracts being terminated. We talk about the migrant protection protocols, Remain in Mexico program, the asylum cooperative agreements. Again, the list goes on and on and on. All of those procedures have been revoked. And so there's a lot of question of, well, how did we get to this point? I think it's very clear. I think most Americans can tell you it's because the administration pulled back these very effective policies. This isn't seasonal, which the White House has talked about. This isn't cyclical. White House has talked about. They've actually tried to blame the Trump administration uh, for this. Uh, and you know the list goes on and on. I think it's very clear when you tear down effective policies that have kept the border in an orderly process, that have allowed individuals that really need asylum to, to seek those protections and get them in a timely manner. When you revoke all of this, you then get a historic border crisis. And it does, you don't have to be a rocket science to figure out why that's occurring. It's occurring because the administration took very specific steps to tear down a number of things. So, it, you know, again, they won't talk about it as a crisis. They continue to talk about it as a challenge. But I would say it's, it's a crisis and not a challenge when you have to close ports of entry along that border because you can't staff them, because you've pulled all of your resources into uh, trying to apprehend, or not trying to apprehend, but to process thousands upon thousands and thousands of individuals. It's not a challenge, it's a crisis when you have 15,000 Haitians under a bridge in Texas. Texas is a warm state. Um, they're there because all of DHS facilities along that border were full, were at capacity, were over capacity. In some stations where they, you know, they have a capacity of 500, they had 5,000. It's because you have 15,000 Haitians under a bridge because you've broken the system beyond repair and you have to house them under a bridge outside in very unsanitary conditions. It's a crisis and not a challenge when you are releasing individuals into the U.S. and you're not issuing them a notice to appear. You're not telling them to show up at an immigration court at a specific date and a location. Instead, you're releasing them and saying, wherever you go in the United States, please show up to your local ICE office, please. Um, all of these point to a crisis that we have never seen before. Uh, and again, it's, it's because there's some very specific action. I'll just close on, uh, it's not just occurring at the border, right? We're also seeing this administration slowly but surely abolish ICE step by step as they issue policy guidelines week in and week out. They have issued guidelines recently where you, ICE is, can no longer enforce um, deportation orders. Uh, if they've been in the country, you know, before a certain date, 
ICE can no longer remove these individuals. If they've crossed the border illegally, they've committed a crime. If they commit another crime, if they perhaps commit a third crime, if it doesn't fall in a very specific category that's outlined by the secretary, you can't remove them. Again, you're asking law enforcement officers not to do their job. And I think that's going to have a, a just a, a detrimental effect. Uh, we're already seeing it from a morale standpoint at the department. So for all of those reasons, I think you know that's how we got here. That's where we are. I don't see the administration, unfortunately, taking any different stance on their policies at the border or in the, into the interior. So I get asked a, a lot. You know, we're eight months in. When does it stop? When does the crisis stop? I can't see it stopping anytime soon, at least from a federal government perspective. We'll talk a little bit about what states can do here, and perhaps that will have an impact. But from a, a federal standpoint, uh, I don't see this administration changing policy because if you look at what they campaigned on and, and what they promised to the American people, they're fulfilling it. Uh, I just don't think they had any idea of the consequences to a lot of their policies. So let me end there and I'll, I'll turn it over to Ken. Hans, okay, if I just jump straight in. Yes, please. All right, go ahead. I'm going go right to point to some PowerPoint slides occasionally. And I don't know whether I'm going to be able to see them on the screen in front of us or not, but but um, I, I'm going to talk about uh, what states can do. And I'm going to start with the answer key, which is Hans 2019, actually October 2019, two years ago this month, um, memorandum he did. Any of you can find it searching the Heritage site or what states can do. I'm gonna to add to that a little bit, but governors, attorneys general, and legislatures all have a role to play. A lot of what Hans wrote about was, was policy-based, which therefore involves the state legislature changing laws and creating conditions that disincentivize illegals from coming to your state. And that's how I would summarize uh, their role. But I do wanna add one other item that I encountered as attorney general. I had Business owners frequently complain to me about their competitors, for instance, in construction or roofing, or we can go through a variety of industries um, where their, their complaint was their competitors were using illegal labor and they couldn't compete with that. So I would add to um, uh, uh, what Hans had put in his memorandum that state legislators, of course, governors have to sign these bills but should put into law something along the lines of an unfair trade competition and include this as part of it with triple damages and attorney's fees and the whole nine yards and let the private sector conduct self-help. Uh, let Give them the tools and make it worth it for them to engage in that behavior. So that is one addition that I would suggest in that space, but uh, Han's paper would only take you five or 10 minutes to get through. So I would recommend it to anybody who hasn't already seen it or seen it recently, particularly given the circumstances that Chad accurately described in terms of how bad things are with how little the federal government is doing, um, that it does fall to states to then start taking some steps. Um, trying to focus on some new items. I'm going to move on to the next slide, if you could, please. Um, focusing on what governors can do, specifically uh, border state governors. They are commanders in chief in their own right. They uh, lead their National Guard. That is a position they hold. That guard can be federalized. Um, I, I will frequently use Texas as the example. I told Aaron beforehand, I'm not picking on Texas, but they're the obvious example to use here. Texas also has what they would call the state guard, which is not connected to the federal government. 
Um, numerous states have this. Virginia has something like it as well. Not federalizable. Um, and it is, uh, you know, it's less trained, it's, but it's available to the state. And then of course, all the states have their own civilian law enforcement. So the situation that Chad described in my view constitutes um, a federally allowed or invited, I would argue invited invasion of the United States. And for those people who might think that to invade you have to be a country, I would point out that in this, uh, in the last 20 years, in at least one of the declarations of war, now euphemistically called authorizations for the use of military force, though they are the constitutional equivalent, um, that Congress declared war against non-nation states. So invasions can clearly happen that way as well. And that's what we have on the southern border. If you look at your constitution, Article 4, Section 4, uh, includes an obligation on the part of the federal government to protect states from invasion. The federal government is not doing that right now. And in fact, I would argue they are doing the opposite. They are inviting that invasion. Um, and they made it very clear in the campaign that they were going to do that and they are fulfilling that promise. I mean, we literally have illegal aliens arriving on the border in Joe Biden t-shirts, demanding the president keep his promises to them as opposed to the American people and fulfilling his oath of office of enforcing the law. So what happens when that obligation is not abided by the federal government? So the states have a corollary power in Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3. This is the, the section that says what states can't do uh, in Article 1. And it makes an exception. It says, and I'm going to read for those not looking at the PowerPoint, no state shall without the consent of Congress engage in war unless actually invaded or an imminent threat of invasion. Well, Texas is being invaded. New Mexico is being invaded. Arizona is being invaded. This might be a harder case to make for Virginia. It's not a hard case to make the argument for, for the border states. And under those circumstances, those states are basically given the constitutional authority to engage in self-help. They can, and Texas has done an awful lot of different things. Um, Governor Abbott has been very aggressive this year in terms of dealing with this threat. However, there's still a constitutional authority available here. Texas can return these people back across the Rio Grande River themselves, not using immigration authority. Um, Hans alluded to that in his opening remarks, and there's case law all the way up to the Supreme Court about how that might play out, um, though I actually think this Supreme Court might tweak it in favor of the state's authority. Um, nonetheless, states have authority outside the immigration space in the Constitution to return these folks across the border. And I would urge all of the border state governors to engage in utilizing that authority. Well, who might they use to do that? They can use their National Guard. They can use the Texas Guard. They can use their civilian law enforcement. Um, this has never been invoked before. So I, I often get asked by my lawyer friends, well, what's the legal basis? The legal basis is in the Constitution. And thankfully, we have a Supreme Court that is um, textualist in habit. And if you just read the text, I think you would conclude as a logical matter that what I'm proposing will 
uh, be sustained. One of the other advantages of Texas going first is they're in the Fifth Circuit, and so you have a more favorable litigation path because, of course, there'll be lawsuits because everything in this space captures lawsuits, as Chad and I remember very well. Um, if I could jump to border state governors, well, not so much jumping to them, I described their situation. Um, one other thing they can do is they can deputize law enforcement officers under their state statutes, and every state is a little different about this, from other states to participate in protecting that border. Even within DHS, we use deputization authority. It's the largest collection of law enforcement agents in America in the Department of Homeland Security. So when we had to contend with Portland riots, we went through the deputization process of CBP agents and ICE agents under FPS, the Federal Protective Service, which most people hadn't heard of until two summers ago um, when they were defending federal buildings all over the country, um, though they're a 50-year-old uh, organization within the federal government. And those deputizations took place and they then acted on, with the authority of the FPS. Similar uh, occurrence here can happen within Texas and Arizona, uh, the two most logical places to execute this because of uh, the fact that they have governors who uh, are Republicans and would be more willing to buck the, uh, the administration to implement these sorts of things, which leads to what non-border state governors can do. If you could go to the next slide. And some of this is happening. They can provide law enforcement officers, National Guard members, their equivalent of state guards. You're seeing this from governors Ricketts and DeSantis in Nebraska and Florida, though not with, uh, not with the undertaking I described, not to go participate yet in returning people, invaders, out of, out of Texas, out of Arizona, and so forth. Uh, to take them back across the border. And of course, this will have all sorts of consequences. Mexico will raise a, will raise a cane, um, and, uh, but they're facilitating this. And frankly, a not gentle interplay between President Trump and Mexico uh, two and a half years ago obtained the greatest cooperation we've ever had from Mexico in facilitating the enforcement of our laws against illegal immigration. They became a tremendous partner. The Remain in Mexico program uh, was one example of that. I will not steal Aaron's thunder because Texas has done such a great job on that. You, we could expect federal pushback on all of this if states start getting even more aggressive. Um, they'll sue, though I think there's some question, interestingly enough, about whether the federal government could have standing. What is the injury to the federal government of Texas uh, exercising its constitutional right to self-help. Uh, it would be, uh, frankly, as a former attorney general, it'd be a lot of fun trying to keep the federal government out of a case on standing grounds for once, as they typically do to us. You might see them try to uh, use their parkland authority. The federal government owns something like 40%, if I remember correctly, of the, of the border, and um, treating state law enforcement as uh, trespassers. Although interestingly enough, not illegal aliens. Um, so part of part of the benefit is because the fights that will follow, that attorneys general will then have to pick up uh, the gauntlet of um, the federal government is going to be in the very interesting position of trying to stop states from enforcing a law that they won't enforce. Um, that's a very difficult political and policy position to be in, 
and I think it demonstrates the weakness of their legal position. So I will stop there, hand it over to Aaron. Great, well, thanks so much. And Hans, thanks so much for hosting this panel and to the Heritage Foundation for giving this uh, the attention that it absolutely deserves. So um, I am gonna talk about two main things, okay? But, but first I want to note, to give you some context in which uh, Attorney General Paxton is fighting the immigration crisis in which we find ourselves. So Attorney General Paxton has sued on the plaintiff side, stateside plaintiffs, 13 times since January 20th. That's way more than any other state. And it's all for good reason, as you all can imagine. But we're actively involved in 16 cases with the Biden administration. So 16 Texas v. Biden or Biden v. Texas. Of those 16, six of them are immigration related. Attorney General Paxson has sued the Biden administration six times with separate causes of action on immigration related issues. So I'm gonna tell you a little bit about these cases, but so the first part of my remarks will be, I think why states and specifically their attorneys general offices should be more active in litigating immigration matters against the federal government. And then second, I'm gonna tell you all a little bit about those six cases that we're involved in. I'll keep it at a surface level to give you guys an opportunity to ask questions on any individual cases you may uh, be interested in. So first, why the states should sue more. And by the way, I'll just note one other thing. Ken talked a lot about some of the policy or legislative or gubernatorial actions that can be taken in Texas, we have, and you know, other states are like this summer, some are like a summer different, where we have a split executive. So the attorney general, Ken Paxson in Texas, is separately elected by the people of the state of Texas. So our lane is different from the governor's lane. The governor has different constitutional statutory powers than we do. So my remarks, to the best I can, will be limited to what we as in a state AG's office can do. So why the state should sue, should sue more. First, it's necessary. I won't belabor the point because these three gentlemen have covered it uh, with tremendous uh, ability, but we are in not just an immigration crisis, but I would argue an existential crisis about what it means to be a nation. What does sovereignty mean? What does the rule of law mean? What can we sustain hundreds of thousands of migrants at this level, not only culturally, uh, but also financially. And so this immigration crisis that we're in right now cuts to the very heart of fundamental political questions that involve the common good and whether or not the American Republic can be sustained culturally and financially. So it's absolutely necessary for state AGs to get involved. Second, it's just good politics. The immigration crisis and border security consistently rank as by far the number one concern of Americans and with Texans and border state voters in particular. So to the extent state AGs are wondering or they're prioritizing, you know, gosh, what kind of lawsuits do I wanna bring? I want to align my agency's resources with what my people care me about. They voted for me. And so I have a responsibility to deliver results to the folks who voted for me. How do I match my resources with what's most important to the people? The answer is clearly immigration and border security. 
So state AGs, whether you're a border AG or not, you are in the most politically winning position to be bringing lawsuits against the Biden administration. So it's necessary, it's good politics, and these lawsuits are straightforward. Yes, the immigration crisis is extremely complex in terms of why it happens, when it happens, where, what the costs are. It gets even more murky when you consider the fact that we can't even trace a lot of this stuff. And it gets doubly so when you consider the fact that the federal government is obfuscating a lot of what they're doing. And so it's hard to really pin down numbers. To the extent we have numbers, though, they're really bad. And so these lawsuits are not very difficult to bring. The facts abound. The data is terrible. So the states, to the extent that they have to substantiate the injury that flows to them based on the immigration crisis, there's all kinds of data. The state AGs can consult with their state uh, you know, uh, public safety departments if they either have an unwilling or unable state agencies that can help them uh, compile the facts to bring their lawsuit. Give Hans a call, and he and his experts can help substantiate. I mean, we work with our federal partners. We've had multiple conversations with Ken, with Chad, with others, getting affidavits from not just them, but from others in our immigration network to substantiate the facts that form the basis of our lawsuit. So the facts are pretty straightforward. It's a disaster. That's your opening paragraph in every lawsuit. It's a disaster. Second, the states can establish, can establish standing fairly easily. Okay, standing, and I won't get too wonky unless you want me to later, but standing the states have to be able to stand in front of a judge to bring a lawsuit and to show standing so that the judge will listen to you. You have to establish injury to the state that is traceable to the actions complained of. And that and, and what you're complaining of needs to be redressable. So what you're asking the court to do has to be able to fix the problem that you're complaining about. The states can pretty easily establish that given the facts. You can say, look, this is causing uh, public health costs, public education costs, heck, even driver's license costs. The state is having to expend several millions of dollars on providing extra ID. That's injury that we cite in every single one of our lawsuits. And by the way, to the extent that there's any question about whether a state has standing to bring an immigration suit, in the immigration context, federal courts in every circuit across the country give the states something called special solicitude, which is basically an extra little boost. It's like, well, to the extent that there's some questions in these other elements of standing, it's a sovereign state bringing a lawsuit against a sovereign you know, administration or uh, an executive administration. Uh, we'll give them a little bit of special solicitude. So the standing bar is cleared. And then finally, it's the claims are fairly straightforward. There's a playbook that we have run, I mean, and, and this isn't secret, I'm not giving away you know, any sort of special knowledge about the, you can read our publicly filed lawsuits, they follow the same thing. Bad facts, we have standing, and here are our claims. They violated something called the Administrative Procedure Act. They violated Article 2, Section 3 of the United States Constitution, the Take Care Clause. And they violated uh, any substantive provisions of the actual immigration law complained of. We do it every single time. And that those APA claims are really the hook. I mean, and again, I'm not going to go into it, but it's sort of plug and play. If you're a state, just find your injury, establish your standing, plug it into the litany of APA claims and other you know, constitutional and, and statutory claims, and boom, you're in court. 
Now, the one reason why a state might not want to bring a claim is they might say, well, we have bad courts in our state. You know, we've got a lot of very friendly AGs out there who are very aligned with Attorney General Paxton. They're very concerned about the immigration crisis, but they say, yeah, but if we file in the middle district of such and such, we're going to pull, you know, an Obama judge or a Clinton judge, and we know exactly how they're going to rule in this case. Okay, that's fair, but it's not a good excuse because all you have to do is call up Texas and we'll join you as co-plaintiffs and you can file in Texas and we have nothing but good courts. So if you have, if you're from another state and you have an AG that's maybe making that excuse, just say, hey, join in Texas as a co-plaintiff and you file in Texas. We know that we know how to get the good judges. It's not forum shopping to the extent someone wants to use this and quote me in a lawsuit to say that we're doing forum. It's not forum shopping. We're not forum shopping, but we know that we have good, good judges in Texas and a much higher likelihood to pull a judge that's going to stand for the rule of law and not for the disastrous policy preferences of this administration. So that's sort of my first comment, right? States should be suing more and there's no good excuse not to. Now, Attorney General Paxson understands this and it's why he, on behalf of the state of Texas, has sued the Biden administration six times. And I'm gonna give you a very high level view. And again, if you wanna ask questions about it during Q&A, happy to do it. So the first lawsuit that we brought is on the deportation freeze. On day one, of his inauguration, January 20th, DHS promulgated a memo saying that in order to sort of take some time to figure out, uh, get their grip on the current immigration situation, we're going to do a 100-day pause on all deportations. Manifestly illegal. Two days later, we filed for a TRO. It was granted six days later. We then got a, a permanent injunction that was never appealed. So this was like the first and most flagrant example of the lawlessness of this Biden administration. It was so lawless that we got a win in record time. So that was lawsuit number one. And that's dead, that's case closed. They had to, the deportations must continue. Um, deportation freeze, okay? Lawsuit number two is in something called the public charge rule. Now for literally over a century, American law has contained something called a public charge rule, which means that if you are an alien, that is expected by immigration officials to uh, be uh, a drain on publicly funded services, taxpayer funded services, that we have the ability to exclude you. Now, the Trump administration wanted to flesh that out a bit more, not only clarify exactly what the boundaries of the public charge rule are, but, but to actually expand it a little bit. You could imagine that all of the immigrant rights groups and so forth sued the Trump, administra sued the Trump administ administration on this rule and it sort of ground to somewhat of a halt in court. Without getting too detailed into the procedural posture, it bounced up and down between various circuit courts and the US Supreme Court. But the Biden administration, once it was inaugurated, filed motions to dismiss everywhere and said, we're not going to defend the public charge rule anymore. That's bad for America to not defend the public charge rule that President Trump faithfully tried to implement. It's bad for America. So Texas said, okay, if the feds are not gonna faithfully defend the public charge rule, which is the law, then Texas has to intervene in order to defend the law when no one else will. So Texas has led a multi-state coalition that's now in the Seventh Circuit, which is Chicago-based, defending the public charge rule. We, accept, we expect that it'll probably be back before the US Supreme Court. So that's public charge rule. Third arrest prioritizations. 
DHS and ICE promulgated memoranda early on in the administration purporting to give immigration law enforcement officials discretion over arrests and detention where duly enacted immigration laws did not give them give them discretion. So DA Mayorkas said, you guys have discretion to make these sorts of decisions, but you pull eight US code such and such, and it says you shall detain them, you shall deport them, you shall arrest them. There is no discretion in these areas in which DHS was purporting to give discretion. So we sued them under the same sort of playbook that I laid out, and we won in district court. And unfortunately, when the Biden administration appealed to the Fifth Circuit, we pulled an Obama-heavy uh, three-judge panel. And so we'll be filing a, and so we were reversed, but now we're gonna appeal uh, for a, a rehearing on Bonk, which is the whole Fifth Circuit. We expect to win there. Okay, but we got to win at the district court on arrest prioritization. That's lawsuit number three. Lawsuit number four is on the migrant protection protocols, commonly known as the Remain in Mexico program. Once again, you can imagine what I'm going to tell you. Biden administration inaugurated. They announced that it was no longer enforcing it and that they were dismantling it. We said you can't do that. The law requires you to faithfully uphold it. We won at the district court. Biden appealed. Biden lost at the Court of Appeals. Biden appealed again. The U.S. Supreme Court said you lose again. Now it's back in front of the district court. The problem is, is that the uh, we believe, we have good faith reason to believe that the Biden administration is not implementing the Remain in Mexico program as the court told them to do. So we recently filed what's called a motion to enforce, substantiated it with certain facts and affidavits saying, hey, judge, you told the Biden administration they gotta do Remain in Mexico. They didn't see exhibits A, B, C. You have to compel them to do so. Those hearings are probably gonna happen in the next few weeks. If they fail to follow through with it, then we're gonna bring a motion to contempt and then we just keep escalating. Lawsuit number five is Title 42. Title 42 is sort of a body of laws and regulations that allow federal immigration officials to rapidly expel aliens who are expected to have communicable diseases of public health significance, i.e. COVID. And you all have read the headlines where they're not testing people, they're just releasing COVID-infected people into our communities and so forth. So we brought a lawsuit uh, saying, look, you have to follow Title 42. Procedurally, this one's moving a little bit slower, so we don't have any decisive action yet from any district court, but it's something that we expect to win. We have a very good judge who's given us every indication that we're gonna win this one. And then the sixth lawsuit, which started back in 2012, but just ripened into a victory is with respect to DACA deferred action for childhood arrivals. No time to go into the crazy procedures that lasted nearly a decade, okay? But the bottom line is Judge Hayden Hainan in the Southern District of Texas recently said that DACA is illegal because it violated federal law and the Administrative Procedures Act. And therefore there can be no new DACA recipients, no new uh, beneficiaries of DACA moving forward and it's got to dismantle. We'll see whether the federal government adheres to that court order and whether they'll appeal. We don't know that yet, but that is our sixth and final lawsuit, which we uh, consider to be a decisive victory. So states can absolutely do more. They should do more. It's a winner. We've got the playbook. We know that it wins. And I tell you what, we're leaning into a whole bunch of new things. I know uh, Ken has put a, uh, has just been on record putting a little bit more pressure on us to look at that invasion clause lawsuit. Um, but there's a lot more. The lawsuits are not done. You've got the Central American Migrants Program. Uh, you've got uh, these Afghan, unvetted Afghan refugees that are in places all over the country. 
Uh, you've got these newly terminated border border uh, construction contracts. Whether there's a state action there, I don't know. Uh, but the list keeps growing. Attorney General Paxton is faithfully looking at them. We welcome any other sympathetic state to join our efforts or bring their own and bring us along for the ride. Well, in each of those, there were other states came alongside you, correct? Yeah, that's right. So some of them we had to just go it alone because um, it just speed. It just didn't, you know, like the the arrest prioritization. Uh, I'm sorry, the, um, the 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 deportation freeze, but. So in the ICE arrest prioritization, Louisiana came along with us. In the Remain in Mexico program, Missouri came along with us. In the public charge rule and in DACA, over a dozen states joined us. So, you know, this is, uh, states are with us on this. I think it's just a matter of exercising that political willpower to do it. So anyway, with that, I'll, I'll, I'll close and turn it back over to Hans. Thanks, Aaron. Uh Chad, can you any comments on each what what each of you said, and you want to add? To yeah, let me just uh, touch on a, a couple of points because I think they're important. You know, the the lawsuits that Aaron laid out are fantastic, and what we saw, Ken and I saw, and as well as others during four years of the Trump administration, is that the left uses the court system very effectively, uh, not only through states but uh, a whole host of private sector entities that have teams and teams of attorneys trying to thwart um, you know, executive action day in and day out. And so it is effective over time. And so that's why, you know, it's why you, you hear Aaron here, as well as all of us, that states need to do more. Uh, we also have some private sector folks that are filing lawsuits, finding that standing on behalf of, of plaintiffs and the, and the like. So I think the more that uh, we can do that, I don't think you know, folks on the right, from a conservative perspective, we're not nearly as good as the left is at this. Um, and they are very, very effective. So we need to take a, a play from their playbook uh, and address that issue head on. Let me put a finer point. I mean, why, why do states sue, right? You have different states joining the state of Texas. I think folks understand why the state of Texas is doing this. This is about impact, right? So this is federal law that the Biden administration is not implementing, but at the end of the day, it doesn't affect folks sitting in DC. Well, it does affect folks sitting here in DC, but it's about impact. And who's left holding the bag? It's not the federal government, unfortunately. It's states. It's the state of Texas, state of Arizona, and states all around the country. So whether it's the impact that this illegal immigration, um, this invasion that we're seeing today has on the economy, on your housing, on your public safety, on your school systems, on your medical services, that's the impact that it's going to have. And that's where you know, this really sort of meets the, the road here is thousands upon hundreds of thousands of individuals coming into the country every month, every year under this administration, what is the impact on the state? And that's why states need to be more active like the state of Texas is and others, because at the end of the day, it's gonna come down to their resources are gonna be strained and taxed uh, and not the federal government. And I think that's critically important. And the more that states can really articulate that, articulate the impact, that we're seeing here, I think the better better off they'll be. And I think the better that the American people will understand it. I think intuitively, most reasonable Americans know what they see on the border is 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 beyond belief. But I think that's a there's a sense of fairness that if you want to enter the country and you want to do that legally, there's ways to do that. You do that at ports of entry and you don't do it illegally. Um, and but it's I think it's critically important that states put a finer point on that and on how it impacts them individually. And then my last point will be, you know, why do we hear the state of Missouri and the state of Florida and Louisiana and others joining the state of Texas? Because they realize that 
what occurs on that border every day doesn't stay in border communities. Whether it's illegal aliens, illegal narcotics, illegal contraband, those flow to, to cities around the country in a matter of hours and days. It doesn't just stay in Del Rio and El Paso and Tucson. It doesn't stay there. Uh, it flows out. So every individual state is being impacted by, again, what I would consider the worst border crisis that we've ever seen, which is, again, why, uh, as Aaron laid out, they have standing to sue. Yeah, I'll just make two quick points. Uh, one to follow on Chad's impact point on states. And one thing that is easy to forget between states and the federal government when, when responsibilities hit, states don't print money. They have balanced budget requirements. The federal government just prints money, literally. Uh, I don't know the numbers for the recent bills, but in the Trump COVID $1.9 trillion bill, only about a third of it was sold on the open market. Two thirds of that money was printed printed, which devalues what's in your pocket. So the states have actual choices to make on these resource implications. Whereas I joke about federal government negotiation as being you get what you want and I get what I want. That's a federal compromise. So that's a, that's a big difference between the states and the feds. And the other is, I'll admit a bit of a pet peeve of mine, but because we're talking about the the implications of all of this. One thing that is amazingly undiscussed is how an open borders policy utterly guts opportunity and hope for American poor people. We're talking about an invasion of unskilled work, workers, and they compete at the low end of our economic scale. And they both deny work opportunities just on, as a statistical matter, to American poor people, and because we all know the law of supply and demand here at the Heritage Foundation, because there's an oversupply of that portion of the labor pool, they depress wage opportunities as well. One of the beauties of a civil society properly functioning is that everyone has the opportunity to move up. That guts that opportunity to move up for American poor people. And I think they should be a lot more of a priority than they are in any of these discussions and in federal policy. Aaron, you, anything you want to add to, to that? No, I mean, I, I would, I suppose I would just offer one brief reflection that's, that's not necessarily tied to anything that, that I said or that was said before. But so late last night, I got back from my fourth border trip and we've got our fifth planned uh, at the end of this month. Um, this time it was in Del Rio, which was the site of the most recent sort of uh, the, the Haitian, the, we've all seen the pictures on, under the bridge, okay? And we went to that bridge and there was it was all cleared out since then. Um, I've, Attorney General Paxton and some of his senior staff have gone down, like I said, four times, but on average about once, you know, once every six weeks or so for the past several months, okay? And I can tell you that there is this crescendo of anger from folks who live at the border. You know, back in February, March, it was like, this is crazy. I've never seen so many people here. It's unbelievable. During the summer, it was, 
now I'm seeing illegals on my property from my deer cam that I've got out on my ranch or whatever. Uh, and I'm getting my fence cut sometimes. Now it's, I'm hearing illegal aliens rustling around in my garage twice a week. I went out for a long weekend and my stove was on and my food was rummaged through. I've got young kids and they are so upset about what's going on. Now, I'm assuming most of y'all live here in Washington, D.C. I live in Austin, Texas. We've got our own weird problems in Austin, but we don't have, uh, you know, border crisis problems. We don't live this stuff. But the reality that these people live in at the border is something that I don't think very many of us can fathom unless, unless you've really lived there. Uh, it, these people are living in fear every single day. As, uh, as I'll, I'll, I'll sort of... Uh, paraphrase what President Trump said many years ago, uh, they're not sending their best uh, over the border. And um, it's not just, you know, single adults anymore. It's like, it's really bad guys. And I guess I will say one other thing that is connected to uh, what Ken mentioned. It's not just a border state crisis. Uh, they are spreading into communities all over the country, and they're using one of two methods to do so. One is taxpayer expense. So you get a federal bus ticket or now with the Central American Migrant Program, which is arguably illegal, uh, you know, you're taking plane rides wherever you need to go. The second, and I think potentially even worse method that they're using without is, ID, of course. Yeah, without ID. That is exactly, <laughs> well, IDs are racist. So um, uh, is the cartels. The cartels sort of have, they, they control both sides of the border. And depending on how much money you're willing to pay in Guatemala, or, or you're not even really paying money, you're becoming, your family's becoming an indentured servant to the cartels. And then they are, they are trafficking people up to whatever community that they can get into. So it's not just a Texas problem. And it gets to why many, many states can establish injury. It's not just, it's not just Texas. So it's really bad. I could keep going, but we'll turn it back over to Hans. Let me ask one quick question before we uh, go to the audience, since we're running short on time. Look, we've talked a lot about all the costs of this, uh, the dangers from COVID, because the administration <laughs> seems to have a dichotomy on this. Uh, you know, they're, <laughs> they're they're talking about forcing vaccinations here, and yet they're uh, allowing tens of thousands of individuals in without testing them or vaccinating them. But talk a little bit about the security concerns, because it would seem to me, I mean, there's two things here. One, I mean, the cartels are the, I think, are considered the most dangerous um, uh, criminal gangs in the world. They've killed more people than we lost in the Vietnam War. Uh, but also, it seemed to me that if it was 2001 and this was uh, the, the situation we had on the border then, the 9-11 hijackers would have just gone to Mexico and easily gotten into the country that way. Yeah, just a, a couple of comments, because I think that's right. Uh, and Aaron touched on this as well. It's not just, you know, this administration would like you to believe it's just, you know, it's minors and families who are being persecuted wherever they're, you know, coming from in their home country, and they're, they're seeking a better life. There is some of that, but a lot of it is that criminality that we see. Uh, it's also national security current concerns. It's known and suspected terrorists that are coming across this border. So there's a number that we haven't talked about. Uh, which a colleague uh, of ours talks about quite often, which are the gotaways. These are individuals who cross the border that never see a border patrol agent and that disappear into the country. 
And so in this fiscal year, it's estimated about 400,000 of those individuals have crossed the border and have gotten away. These are individuals that have the means and the capability to pay those cartel members to sneak them across the border in areas that they know the Border Patrol is not in. Uh, and why do they do that, right? Because they're MS-13 members. Again, they're other bad actors. They're special interest aliens. There's a number of categories that we can talk about, but it's all very, very concerning. But there's 400,000 individuals that have crossed that border that we know nothing about. Um, and so don't be you know, fooled that it's just children and families that want to come across the border and that you know, we need to devise an immigration system that solely caters to that group. That's not the case that we're seeing. Uh, it's not what we know about. And I think that's very important to continue to come back because the question I often ask folks is how many does it take? You know, is it just a hundred bad folks? Okay, well, we can let those through. Absolutely not, right? It only, it only takes a handful of these folks. And a number that the administration's not talking about, and they refuse to talk about it publicly, is how many known or suspected terrorists have they come into contact with along the border since January? And they won't talk about it. They'll say it's classified. Well, it's not classified. I mean, it's classified if they want to make it classified. I'm not even asking, <laughs> you know, what's their nationality? Where are they from? I'm asking for an overall number, because I think that number is somewhere north of 10, could be upwards to 20 or more. Um, we've had a, a border chief, a uh, chief of the Border Patrol who just left, who actually cites this as one of the main concerns that he has as well. And so this administration is not being honest with the American people about that national security threat. Yeah, I would say they're not being honest to uh, expand that point about a lot of things. Can you imagine, Ted, if we didn't let congressmen into our facilities for six weeks? Um, and what reaction did you see from the media? Crickets. That was early in the administration. Um, certainly the next Republican administration should commit to the same level of openness. Yeah, and uh, you, you may have seen reports, uh, Ken. There's a report, um, I think a town hall about the fact that, you know, Lindsey Graham is headed down there and there are sources inside the border patrols saying the administration is trying to move people out right. of the overcrowded um, facility they're in so that when he gets there, he's not going to see that, which for those who know Russian history, sounds like they're setting up a Potemkin village. Yes, along the it does sound like that, or at least a Potemkin detention center here. And then um, it's it's the cartel folks who are managing this traffic. Um, it's estimated by some they're now making more money from human trafficking than drug trafficking. Um, and it's easier for them. The cost-benefit analysis, and they do cost-benefit analysis, is uh, much higher for them. Um, and uh, we're used to looking at this border from where we sit, or even in Texas. For a second, put yourself on the south side of the border and look north. That entire border, west to east, is controlled by the most evil, vicious people in the Western Hemisphere, the Mexican drug cartels. They control it. And the Mexican government would deny that, but it is absolutely true. The Mexican government doesn't control one-sixth of its own country. These people do. When Afghanistan didn't control its own country 20 years ago, um, and it was the base of terrorist attacks on the United States, we did something about it. We messed it up pretty quickly, but, but we took action. Yet our neighbor to the south doesn't control one-sixth of their own country, the most evil, vicious, terrorist organized criminals in the Western Hemisphere do. 
And um, the reason they know there's no border patrol in particular areas is because they have higher resources, or I should say in, in raw manpower, um, in intelligence, probably than we do on our side. I mean, we'll, we've all been to the border and seen some guy sitting on a hill with a cell phone. He's not out for a picnic. He's a spotter. And it's easy, it's cheap, and it gets the high value, high danger border crossers across with ease because we have a federal government that refuses to close those holes. Yeah, I, I, to, to emphasize uh, Ken's point, the, the, there is no question that the cartels have operational control of both sides of the border. And these people are worse, I think, than any Afghan Taliban bad guy that I ever saw in Afghanistan. These are the most awful, evil people on the planet. Now, their focus on turning profits from human trafficking, which has exploded, has also allowed our resources to shift towards trafficking. And what does that mean for the drug trade? It means that the drug trade is now proliferating because we're not able to devote as much resources to that. We're trying to, it's sort of whack-a-mole with these guys. We're trying to get them on human trafficking. So now the drugs are coming through. Now we have fentanyl and now there's this new variant of fentanyl, carfentanyl. Uh, and so, and here's the other thing that I wanna say about optics. The Biden administration will make a flashy video, take you to the Donna holding facility, okay? In down near McAllen. And they'll say, look at all these teen boys that are here. Oh, they're just trying to reunite with their families. Now, look, I don't know how these teen boys ended up where they are, but they are absolutely with and working with the gangs. And I tell you what, when they get to the United States, we give them free Wi-Fi. We give them a phone. We give them Internet Act, computer access. And they're sending all that in. If you're a healthy, fit 15-year-old boy, and you're working for the cartel because the cartels have threatened your family, maybe you were forced into it, you're getting across the border and you're feeding regular intel back to the cartels and they're just sending more. And then the Biden administration will turn its cameras to these poor women and children. And many of them are in awful circumstances and our hearts should break for a lot of these women and children, but they are involved in the trafficking trade as well. And it's awful, awful, awful stuff to hear what goes on with these young girls and these young women. Uh, and many of whom are told that they're being smuggled to St. Louis or Dallas or whatever, but they're not being smuggled. The cartel will get you up there, but before they know it, they're being trafficked and they don't know any other way out because the cartels are threatening them or they have a debt that they need to pay. So what a mess. All right. I, we're very short of time, but I think we have time for at least one, one question. Uh, Someone want to ask it? We've got a microphone coming down, right? Well, you, I think you had a hand up first. Go ahead, right there. And if you would, please identify yourself and uh, please make it in the form of a question, not a not a statement. Yeah. Well, no, you need to speak into the yeah, mic. So folks, folks. Oh, I'm online too. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, my name is James Cerrone. I'm a journalism student from the University of Maryland. And my question is for Mr. Reitz. Um, I have a two part question because I know we're short on time. So um, you uh, raise an issue with illegal immigrants getting driver's licenses. Um, 
would you rather they not have a license and they don't go through like the safety protocols to be allowed to drive? I mean, that, that seems like a issue to me. And what do you say to uh, critics of the, uh, the remain in Mexico program who said that uh, migrants were being returned to Mexico in unsafe places? I mean, you mentioned the cartels. So that's my two part question for you. Um, thanks for your question, uh, James. Uh, it, my answer is going to be very briefly that those are very interesting, I think, policy questions. Uh, but as, as an attorney with the Office of the Attorney General, we have to litigate the laws that the policymakers give to us. And, uh, you know, so whether, whether it's a sound policy decision to send them back into Mexico or another, that, that, that's for the, the, the Congress to decide, uh, not for us. And then same question with, uh, with the ID. So um, very interesting policy questions, but outside the scope of what Attorney General Paxson deals with. So I'll, I'll jump in real quick on the MPP front because this is obviously an issue that we dealt with at the department as we set up uh, the migrant protection protocols. And look, at the end of the day, Mexico is a sovereign country and the action that we took in setting up MPP was an action from the US government. We have the authority to do it under immigration law. They have uh, the ability to provide safe facilities. We actually provided a number of foreign assistance to help them uh, build safe facilities. And let's not remember, these migrants have been in Mexico for weeks, if not months. They have chosen to take this very dangerous journey. So it's not as though, um, you know, Mexico, they have no idea what, what journey they're taking or the places that they have come through. So again, MPP was designed for a couple of different reasons. One is to make sure that uh, we could root out the fraud in that asylum system, right? So everyone showing up, almost everyone, I should say, is claiming asylum. We know 90% never qualify for asylum. So the 10% that really, really qualify, that need the protections under US law, don't get them for years, years at a time, because there's too much in the system and it can't be processed. And so the idea is if you're truly fearing for your life from let's say Central America, Guatemala, you're gonna wait in Mexico. Those who are not fearing for the life that are trying to abuse the system, they have no interest in waiting in Mexico. And guess what we saw during the Trump administration? A lot of them, I would say the majority of them, decided to go back home. So in what world are you free, you know, fearing for your life to only return back home because you don't want to wait in Mexico? So it's this idea of either we believe the asylum system is broken or we believe that it works. And I know very few people outside of this administration that believes the asylum system works today. Yeah, I'll just speak to the driver's licenses. I would suggest that... Um... Uh, and you'd see it in Han's legal memorandum. I think I'm like your best advertiser. Oh, yeah, ever. you are. <laughs> but, uh, it, it, you know, this is a policy decision that incentivizes people to come here. But some states have chosen to do that, and that has a cost, which uh, Aaron spoke of in terms of injury to the state, which is legitimate. Um, but I would advocate for getting rid of that option um, and um, and disincentivizing on a state-by-state -state basis in this one way, uh, illegals from coming to your state. So um, you point to safety learning. I, look, I've taught five kids and counting to drive. Um, and um, in Virginia, where I am, we have these accidents with disturbing frequency um, with illegals 
um, that are serious. Drunk driving is, if you look at the criminality analysis of, say, DACA recipients, that's far and away the biggest um, serious crime that occurs. And it's interesting to me that so many people who care so much about stopping drunk driving um, are more interested in keeping drunk drivers here. Um, I don't think that uh, your point about the trade-off with safety of having the driver's license entry gate um, has borne out across the United States. It is a policy decision of whether people want to accommodate illegals or not. Unfortunately, that uh, we didn't we get a, didn't get as many questions as we wanted. As you can tell, it's because this is a very big topic. Uh, it's very complex. Uh, I think we could have scheduled this for four hours, and we still wouldn't finish it. Um, I, I do want to mention, since uh, Ken talked about it, if you're interested in the paper he was discussing, it's called Enforcing Immigration Law, What States Can Do to Assist the Federal Government and Fight the Illegal Immigration Problem. And it's up on the Heritage website, and it basically goes through policy implementations that states can do because the courts have said it's okay. And it doesn't invade the federal government's authority on immigration. But please give a round of applause to our great panelists today. Thank and thank you for coming to the Heritage Foundation.